Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, here we go. Time for us to start another semester of Compass Night. How many of you here have never been to Compass Night before? Wow. Well, how many of you have been to more than 10 Compass Nights with me? 10 years of Compass Nights. You had to add that one up. I think we've been doing it now for 13 years, something like that. You don't care, and it doesn't matter, I suppose. But we're going to have one tonight. Lord willing, we'll get through. Uh, I think we have 13 weeks planned. We are excited. 12. Excited to get through this. Take a little break at Thanksgiving. Be done before Christmas. We'll be here before you know it. But we are excited about getting into this particular topic. You've never been to a Compass Night before. These are not sermons. Very different. A little bit longer. Hopefully they don't feel longer. We have occasional charts, which I actually have a chart for you tonight. I know. I know. I know. How exciting. It was really an unnecessary chart. I just thought we could have it. I, I could. I just could have put one, four, five, eight sub. But I wanted a chart. All right, gang. Let's talk about this first. Let's talk to God about it. Hopefully, dinner was good, was it? Las Colandrinas. That's good stuff. We've got some good dinners planned for you this fall, and uh, it's always good to eat together. So much scripture is depicting the church around food, and I think at Compass, we're getting an A-plus in that. We certainly uh, do what we can. Most of our food around here is obviously uh, generously provided by uh, the folks that give faithfully, and uh, this year we're trying something new in terms of making sure that uh, you have the option to help offset the cost of this a little bit with that app, and I'm told about that, but we uh, appreciate that, obviously. Give generously in the offering, and it takes care of things like that, and donuts and coffee, along with the light bill. All right, well, let's pray together, and then we'll talk about apologetic. Week one. God, we ask ask for your governance of this whole semester. We don't want to be presumptuous about the future, but we are certainly here right now. Tonight, we want your active involvement in our minds. You are the creator of our intellect, life to our bodies. We are here as a result of your determined and planned sovereign calendar that you put us in the timeline, put us here. You've drawn us to the church. You've made us brothers and sisters in Christ in this particular place. And our mission field, at least for now, is right here in South Orange County. We have opportunity, extended family, scattered abroad, but we have a primary responsibility here in South Orange County to reach people with the gospel, and we know we need the topic that we're discussing now in December. We ask that you'd give us great insight. It'd be very practical. It'd be something that would help us immensely in not just bolstering our confidence, but giving us just the opportunities to have good and reasoned responses to the world's objections to the gospel. Many objections that we've had, some that we've held tightly to our, our own hearts before we came to Christ, and probably some even that we've grappled with since becoming Christian, dealing with unanswered questions that we want to settle in our minds. We ask that this would be a great semester to enrich our faith, grow our confidence. Thanks for this church. I love it so much. I'm thankful for this team of people that call this their church home. We're grateful to gather together on Thursday nights. We pray for everything else that's happening on this campus. Last night it was filled. Tonight it's filled. We ask for good things to happen in every classroom, every room, every meeting hall on this campus tonight. Be actively involved in this particular room. Give our minds and our intellect to you. We want to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We'd start with that uh, commitment, that resolve to give our minds afresh to you this evening. So God, govern our time, bless our time, enrich our time. All right. We're going to ask the fundamental basic question for any topic. We're going to have a fancy word on our paper that maybe you may be accustomed to being in church, but we want to ask the question, what is apologetics? Unfortunately, it's another transliterated word from the Greek New Testament. 
Last two weeks, we've had two transliterated words. What are they? Interactive Thursday night crowd. We had one last weekend in verses 4 through 8 of Acts 1. And what was that word? Baptism. Very good of you. Week before that, we had another transliterated word that was not translated, just made its way into English. And that was the word in verses 1 through 3. Think, think, think. Apostle. Very good. One of you. Apologetics is another another transliterated word from the Greek New Testament. And at risk of being redundant, that means that it just slid right over from the Greek to our English language without any kind of translation, turning over, interpretation in our language. So we've got to figure out what that means. We don't see the word in the Bible as a transliterated word. We do see it as a translated word. So we want to find the central passage in the New Testament as it relates to this, and the activity is commanded here, so we want to look at it. Jot this down, First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, of the suffering and persecuted early church. Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those that are persecuted, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the boss, as the Lord, and as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in this passage tonight, and we're going to deal with this three-word phrase in English, which is a translation here of one Greek New Testament word. It's the Old Testament Hebrew, you passage in Aramaic, New Testament Greek, Koine Greek, not Attic, not Classic Greek, Ancient Greek, but it's transliterating in our study tonight, at the bottom of every slide and the top of your page, the word apologia. Apologia. Apo is a compound word, and logia. Apo is a preposition, which are so helpful. Really, the only time I try to, not all the only time, but usually the time I'm going to spend any time in the service dealing with Greek, it's when it's a compound word with a preposition, because those prepositions become great word pictures. And so it is with this, apo. And uh, the word logia is one you should be somewhat familiar with, at least the root of it, logos, you know, hopefully it's Bible software, and if it's the best Bible software, use logos Bible software. So if familiar with that word at least, and certainly if you've been in church, you know that John 1.1 deals with the word was God, the word was with God. Remember all of those phrases translates the word logos. So let's think this through here. Apo is the Greek preposition, which is a directional spatial word. That's what prepositions are, right? They show us the relationship of something to something else. And apo is the word from or out of or away from or off of. That's what the the preposition apo is. Lots of great compound words in the New Testament that are connected to apo and pair and pros and a lot of different Greek prepositions that show us direction. This particular one is speaking of out of, away from, off of. Logia, if you were to translate the word logos, you would say that's the word word. Logia is first cousin of that word, and it means a saying or a statement or a charge. So to make a defense, if you see this phrase, defense in the New Testament, it usually translates the Greek word either in a noun form or a verb form, uh, apologia. Uh, it occurs 17 times in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament. And here's just a couple of examples, and I really chose these randomly. Even though this one is Festus, it's not even regarding Christian apologetics, but you'll see Festus talking about Roman procedural, legal procedural issues. He says, in regards to the Apostle Paul's case, Festus answers, he's talking to King Agrippa here. He said, it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face-to-face and had an opportunity to make his apologia, his defense, concerning the charge. 
laid against him. So it's a picture of a courtroom, which, of course, that's easy to understand. Someone is accused, you have the plaintiff, you have the defendant, and the defendant is defending himself, and that's what you have as a very descriptive, at least in that context, word of someone saying you've been charged with a crime and you need to make a defense for your accusation that's laid against you. Acts 22, Paul stands up and says, brothers and fathers, hear the apologia, the defense that I now make before you. And of course, a lot of what we have recorded in Acts, in the latter part of Acts, is Paul before people defending himself before the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Roman consul, the in Rome, which we don't hear about the details of that, but on his way to Rome and Jerusalem and Caesarea, he's making a defense. Philippians 1.7, in a more general sense, Festus can talk about Roman procedure in court. Paul can talk about defending himself from false charges. And now in Philippians chapter 1, he says, it's right for me to feel this way uh, about you all, the Philippians, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Well, they're not running to Rome or Caesarea or, or Jerusalem to be his attorney, but they are out there defending the very same things that Paul is defending, and that is the fact the gospel needs to be defended against people that are falsely charging people uh, in the New Testament, Paul included, with being people teaching ridiculous things. And so he needs to make a defense, and they are out there in their part of Macedonia or Asia Minor making the defense for the faith in their context. Feels that kinship with them as they as he is in prison, writing his prison epistle. One sixteen, he speaks of those that are preaching with bad motives and those that are preaching with good motives. Some are rivals to Paul and they are preaching in a sense in a way that would make Paul look bad. And he says, but there are some that preach out of love and they know that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm here trying to go to the Praetorian Guard and to all those in Rome and I'm trying to make a case that the gospel is legitimate, it's reasonable, it's right, it's good, it's true. So our phrase here, make a defense, we could we could give a definition. My definition, uh, the way I like to put it, I would put it this way because it's a process of continually responding to things. So I'm going to say this. It's a reasoned and, per, and persuasive responses. It's reasoned, I should say, and persuasive responses. And you're going to have those for the rest of your Christian life, or at least you should, to accusations now, Paul defended a lot of things. Before the Jews, he defended the fact that Jewish prophecies of the Old Testament were legitimately fulfilled in, in Christ, and he certainly made procedural defenses about the fact that they shouldn't be imprisoned without a trial because of a Roman citizen. Lots of things he did, but when we're talking about Christian apologetics, we're talking about us making a reasoned and a persuasive, we're trying to change minds here, persuasive responses to accusations against the truthfulness of Christianity, which is a word we can hardly use in the New Testament. Three times it's used, and a pejorative term at that. But we're saying, of course, is a positive term, Christianity, Christian theology, Christian truth claims, we are saying we're trying to make reasoned and persuasive responses to anyone that would say, that's dumb, that's stupid, that doesn't make sense. So that's very simple. That's what apologetics is to make a defense. So we're going to spend 13 weeks doing what the phrase right in front of it says we should do, and that is to always be prepared to make that defense. So I guess we should probably have it more often than we do, although we have, I guess, some curriculum here and there that does this. But uh, we should, as a church, regularly be providing opportunities for you to defend 
the false accusations against the truthfulness of the gospel. So this whole series, Apologetics, is about you being prepared, which is great. It's great to be able to point out a verse that says, here's why I'm going to church on Thursday nights to study this, or I'm streaming it online, or I'm downloading it, listening to it at the gym, or whatever you're doing with this sermon right now, this message, this lecture, is because it's right there in the scripture. We're supposed to always be prepared. So a Christian that doesn't study apologetics at some point and think about reasoned and persuasive responses to accusations against the truthfulness of Christianity, they're not doing what the Bible says all of us should do, not just Christians in the first century, but all of us today. All right, but I want to move beyond that, although that is important. We'll get to that in letter C, I suppose. But letter A, why engage in apologetics? Number two, let me give you three basic reasons we should engage ourselves in apologetics. Okay, first of all, I want to start with this phrase in the middle of the passage, that we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And you might remember some old translations of this, to to set him apart, to sanctify Christ. That's what the word hagios means, holy. It means to set someone apart in the place that he belongs, in this case, into the special place as Lord. You ought to honor him in your hearts and then be ready to make a defense to anyone who's going going to ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So I want to focus on that. Before we fill in, number one, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. This is Jim Bauer. He lives out in the Midwest. He's been on TV. He's been interviewed several times. And, and you're saying, I don't know Jim Bauer. Well, you shouldn't. I mean, I, I don't think you should. He has strong opinion about farming, has strong opinions about, you know, investments in farm equipment and uh, stark market as it relates to agriculture. Someone you wouldn't know, and I didn't know him until I looked for someone to illustrate this point. So there's Jim Bauer. And if I told you he is an opinionated guy, that's why they put him on TV and, and interview him on these, these stations, because he has some very strong opinions. And he seems to be one of those critics, naysayer. And I don't mean to bash Jim Bauer. I don't know him that well. So he's got these negative critiques about a lot of things. And if I said he's got strong opinions about this, and now I say to you, okay, I've introduced you tonight to Jim Bauer. What do you think? You would think I don't care. I, would, I don't think you would care. Even if you had a, an uncle that was in farming in the Midwest, you, you probably don't care. You might call and ask him. You text him. Do you know Jim Bauer? You don't care what he thinks. You're probably not going to call him. You're not going to talk to him. You're not going to send him an email. You just don't have any concern. Okay, let's say this is you. Here you are, and here's Jim Bauer. You and Jim Bauer. I want you to imagine the opinionated Jim Bauer having a few things to say directly to you. And you might even be a farmer. You think, well, whatever. I don't, I don't care what he thinks. Right? I'm going to go about my business and do my thing, and I, I don't care what Jim Bauer thinks. But if Jim Bauer has some opinions about your children. And I said, he has some very opinionated and negative things to say about your children. As a matter of fact, I flew him out from Chicago. He's here in parking lot. And after the service, he wants to unload a bunch of negative, critical things about your children. And he's really amped up and his veins are popping out and his face is is flush. And I I just, he's here, but he has a lot of specific things to say that he he doesn't like about your kids. Uh, Now do you care? Well, you say, well, I don't really care too much about Jim, but I don't want him spewing things about my children. That's important. Tie this together in a minute. Here's my Chicago Cubs hat. I'm not a sports fan. I'm not a baseball fan. I went to school in Chicago, lived there for a little while. I don't know. When my kids try to figure out something for Christmas, I guess I, at some point I, I got a Chicago Cubs hat. Who knows? I probably even bought one at some point. And I, I could wear that. And I might run into Jim Bauer, who's very negative and doesn't like the Cubs. And he may come up to me in the parking lot, red-faced, veins popping out, and has things to say about the Cubs. I, and when he starts spouting off information about some of the players that he hates and what a terrible team they are, I won't even know any of those players and I don't, I don't really care. All I care is if the hat fits and feels good on my head and covers my bed head in the mornings. That's, that's all I care about. 
I, I don't really care about his criticisms or negative opinions about the Cubs. You want to complain about my kids? I'm going to listen, and I'm probably going to respond, and I'm even have to control myself depending on what you're going to say uh, if you're going to spout off in the parking lot to everyone about my children. If you want to spout, out in the parking, spout off in the parking lot about the Cubs, I don't care. Okay, stupid illustration, but you see what I'm saying. The extent to which you have a love and loyalty for the object of someone's harsh criticism and false accusations, which I guess for the Cubs, a lot of the accusations would be true, but let's just say your kids are being falsely accused. And let's say the Cubs are being falsely accused. The extent that you want to correct any of that really is proportional to how much you care about what's being criticized. And some of you sit here and say tonight, and I I don't know, maybe I'm preaching to the choir because you actually came to this. Maybe you didn't have anything to do tonight, so you just came. I don't know. Maybe you you don't care like you should, but some of you don't want to do apologetics. Maybe some of you stumbled upon this recording and you don't want to do apologetics. You don't really care. I don't like to argue about Christianity. I don't like to argue about politics. I don't want to engage in all that debate then I would say this, you need to check whether or not you really have set Jesus the Lord, Christ the Lord, apart in your heart as holy, as special, as unique. I mean, we certainly love our kids more than we love Christ if we're willing to defend our kids in the parking lot, but we really don't want to engage in any kinds of arguments at work about Christianity. And I mean arguments in the best sense of the word. I want to give you a counter to what you're saying that is not true about Christ and Christianity. Here's a picture drawn in 1430, or at least that's when this very fancy Bible was penned and illustrated. It's a Bible story. You Sunday school graduates, if you really graduated with a magna cum laude from Sunday school, you can probably tell me what this is. Think now. What, who is it? Who is it now? Phineas. Okay, this is Phineas. This is a very interesting story, and I didn't put it all on the screen, but I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles, call it up on your laptops. Look at this passage of me real quickly in Numbers chapter 25. It has always been a fascinating passage to me. When I was a kid, I didn't know it was there. But when I finally found this passage as a Christian, I sat there and thought, this is an amazing text that has always made me pause. And every year when we study it in our DVR, it makes me think, wow, this is a crazy passage. And this Alba Bible from 1430, 15th century, ancient, uh, or at least classical Spanish, this was done in, has quotes from the text and then a very interesting drawing of Phineas. Verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, maybe you remember Balaam, the prophet, who was out there saying bad things about Israel because Balak, the king, had hired him with the Moabites and tried to somehow foil them and and they tried everything they could try. And every time, you know, it's like Fonzie trying to say he's sorry. Every time he tried to curse the Israelites, all that would come out was a blessing. Matter of fact, some amazing messianic prophecies came out of Balaam's mouth. So he couldn't undermine the power, the vigor, the direction, the godly support and favor that God had on Israel. And yet in Numbers 25, we find out that actually there was some success in undermining the Israelites. What happened? Well, they whored with the daughters of Moab. The ESV doesn't hold back on the translation there. Verse 2, these invited, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the peoples ate and bowed down to their gods, which was always a concern whenever Israel was going, who they were connected to in marriage and in sex and romantic relationships, not only for just the sake of sexual morality, but the fact that they were always going to draw their hearts away to the false gods and the idols. So Israel, interesting word, we get the same English translation in Second Corinthians 6 about what you should not be doing in any kind of relationship with non-Christians. They yoke themselves, like that thing that goes over the back of the oxen. They yoke themselves to Baal Peor. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because there was a tight relationship here with people that were idolaters. And these Israelites started to connect themselves with that false God. And the Lord said to Moses, now here is a huge and daunting sentence that's passed by God on Israel. The Lord said to Moses, verse four, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Now, that's an amazing thing. Go take the leaders of these tribes out there and hang them. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor, which was in the Mosaic law. It was a capital offense. And he's saying, all right, God says, do this. Go do it. And one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, if you just found out that the leaders, every small group leader, you know, that had compromised in this way was supposed to be executed that day, there'd be a lot of tears. And so they were crying. And then someone, you can just see them strutting past Moses like, come on, you Bible wingnut crazy man. This is ridiculous. Who cares? Lighten up. And he's going there in the middle of the day to go bed down this idolater. And it says in verse seven, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose. He left the congregation. He took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, this Moabitess, through the belly. And I'm thinking, you know, when you see something like that and you put yourself in the sandals of that scene, thinking, what is God going to do in response to that? I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, it just seems so like it's just out of, it doesn't have the, the legal and, and pompous and jurisdictional kind of, of official act of Moses doing this. It's just some priest now who's just fed up watching this guy just defy God. And he takes the spear and he goes and runs them both through. And the Bible says, thus the plague of the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, a lot of people had died. Those who died in the plague were 24,000. So the people were pared down exactly like Balaam and Balak wanted. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas is a hothead. He ought to get some counseling and, and, and get a hobby or something. No, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him a covenant of peace. There's a man who just went out and killed someone in broad daylight. It shall be given to him and his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Look at verse 11 again. This is a great line. He was jealous, middle of the verse, with my jealousy. He had my kind of jealousy among them. And that stayed this plague so that I didn't consume them in my jealousy. I hate it. And all I'm telling you, as raw as that passage is, and a scene on an ancient 15th century Spanish Bible that you're probably not going to see on any day spring cards, you think that is so amazingly rough. And yet God said, finally, I got a guy that's as zealous for my honor as I am zealous for my honor. There's a great Eric Tonis, one of the, our guest speakers, he professor up at Biola and Talbot, wrote that book called Godly Jealousy. And a great scene in that book, just un- unpacking this story. Because here is a guy who is really not going to sit on his hands and watch 
the Lord's honor be trampled underfoot. It's like David listening to Goliath defy the armies of Israel. And he's saying, I can't take it. Let me at him if no one else will. I'm not looking to create people that just want to argue. And there's stupid places to argue, like on your Facebook page. Not a good place to do apologetics. But I am saying this. We need some Phineases. We need some Davids. We need some people that are willing to say, I don't like it. Just like I think if your wife came out as as Jim Bauer is slamming your kids wrongly and he's lying against them, he's bringing false accusations against them, I think your wife would be Phineas perhaps and take a spear and drive Jim Bauer through because she cares about the honor of her children. And all I'm saying is we listen every day to people disparaging Christ and the truth of the gospel. And so we need to care. And it all starts with that phrase, the honor in my heart, Christ the Lord, he's specially set apart. He's at the pinnacle of my heart. I put it this way. Why should I engage in apologetics? Search your heart. It's not because it's about your reputation and, and, and how smart you are and, and that we're right and they're wrong. It's about you being jealous for God's honor. I use the word jealous only because Numbers 25 uses the word. The idea is that, that zeal. I'm zealous for the honor of God. I'm jealous for it. It's not a bad word. The idea just has such negative connotation in our English usage today. But the idea is I'm zealous for it. I want to protect it. And when Christ is disparaged, we want to do something about it. That's a good place for us to start. And it should feel like warfare. And it really, it should. The jihad of the Muslims that go out and, you know, book a... Uh, Garam or Al-Qaeda or all these people that are taking up arms for their theology. I'm just saying we need to have the same feeling, but recognize, as the Bible says, we're not waging war according to physical things. We're not fighting with the weapons of, of the flesh. We're not taking up swords and, in our cases, weapons, knives, and guns. We're not doing that. That's not how we advance the cause of Christ, unlike what Muhammad certainly set the precedent for and taught. But we are engaged in a war, and it ought to feel that way. A kind of weapon that we're engaged in has divine power, and it really does destroy the enemy's stronghold. And it's a bigger defeat than the walls of Jericho coming down or seeing some kind of fortress in in the ancient Near East being defeated by the righteous armies of Israel or having the fully clad, armored Goliath falling. There's something much more powerful and big than that. When God gets involved in having us, here's the context of a very familiar verse now, destroying arguments. These are statements and charges made against Christianity. And every lofty opinion, they think they're so smart. And they love their ideas. And they love to say things that disparage the Lord. And every day this gets worse in our culture. And all those lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge, the truthful, accurate knowledge of God. And we ought to. This is not a verse about pornography, by the way. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. I know we're always using this passage to apply it to ourselves. This is the passage about all the people around us that are making accusations about Christianity that's not true. And Paul says, we're going to war. We're going to war. It's not war with weapons. It's not the spear of Phineas. This is not a nation executing judgment in some judicial sense. But we are an international organization penetrating every dark culture, trying to push back the lies of the enemy when those lies are directed at the knowledge of God, the truthful knowledge of God. And we're trying to change those thoughts. We're trying to take those thoughts captive. And we want them to be submissive to Christ. We want Hitchens and Dawkins and, and, and everyone who slams Christianity. We want them to be obedient to Christ. But it starts with us setting the Lord apart in our hearts as holy, as unique, as we care about his honor. Just let that sink in for just a second. I mean, how highly do you honor Christ? Enough to say something to someone when they disparage him? To say something about the only way that a person could ever be saved and they dismiss it as irrelevant? 
or stupid or ridiculous. We need to love the Lord enough and honor him enough and have a jealous protection of his truth. A lot of words I've heard, a lot of phrases I've heard where people try to somehow abdicate that responsibility. The Lord can defend himself, right? We don't have to defend the truth. We're called to apologetics because we love the truth of the Lord. Letter B, why engage in apologetics? Let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 on the screen here, verses 5 and 11. There's two sides to this, I think, in view in this passage. Paul certainly is thinking first about his own judgment. We get this word bima from this passage, the bima seat, the raised platform. We stand before Christ. We must all, including the apostle Paul, stand before the judgment seat, the evaluating seat of Christ, so that each one may may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Of course, all the condemnation of our sin has been pinned to the cross, so I'm not going to suffer the penalty of my sin, but I certainly am going to be rewarded And to the extent that I'm not rewarded, I suffer loss, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. won't be a happy day if I've wasted and squandered opportunities. Knowing that this is going to happen, and he speaks of all, which means more than just the apostles and the regular Christians in Corinth. But everyone's going to have to stand before the exalted Christ. And certainly there's a lot more discussion in the New Testament about non-Christians standing before the great white throne. He says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're going to go to war. As 2 Corinthians goes on to say, and try and take those thoughts and those lofty opinions that are in opposition to the truth. We're going to take those captive. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We want to change their mind. We want to engage in a kind of persuasion. There's nothing wrong with that. And if your theology doesn't have room for that, then you've lost track of what the Bible has to say about the way God uses people to change minds. And I'm assuming you've had some people in your life that have reasoned with you, maybe even strongly persuaded you to change your thinking about theism or God or creation or salvation or the exclusivity of Christ or the deity of Christ. What I'm saying here is, as though it's stated almost in a negative way, it really is a positive statement. I care about people that are going to have to stand before Christ and pay for their sin. I'd like to see them submissive to Christ and obeying Christ in their thoughts and their lives. I'd like to see them trusting in Christ. Therefore, I care about people. I care about people enough to say, if you've got wrong thoughts about God and you're spewing those out, I'd like to be a part of God changing your mind and all of that. Here's another piece of art. This is, I think, uh, in possession of the, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Can you identify this scene? Some clues here. This is a 1554 etching. See what's happening there with the demon on the left, the water, and on the right, that's not Jesus. That's not a depiction of God the Father. That's Abraham. You got it now? This is the, this is the scene of Lazarus and the rich man. And that scene that Jesus tells people in a very poignant way about the painful dichotomy, really a dichotomy, only two places you can go, a place of blessing and comfort or a place of torment. That's the picture in the passage. In that passage, you might remember the words that Jesus puts into the mouth of the rich man who knows he has no hope. And because he wants to cross from the, the place of punishment to a place of comfort, and he learns from Abraham, there's a chasm and you can't cross from there to here and we can't cross from here to there. So we can't help you and you can't come here. He responds, and Jesus puts these words in his mouth. Then I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, who used to sit at my my mansion's gate there, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, of course, the rich man was thinking of his brothers and his kin. But you've got probably some people, probably some relatives, that are headed to this place of torment. And we ought to have compassion enough for people to say, we ought to persuade them. We ought to do what we can to warn them, which is more than just evangelism. Because as soon as you share the gospel, people want to know, why in the world would you have that hope? 
Why do you even think there's a need for that hope? And apologetics gets you to the place of where you are engaged in trying to correct these thoughts. And it's something that is motivated by compassion. It's a great word in the New Testament. We see it often associated with Christ. In Mark 6, 34, Christ went ashore from the Sea of Galilee. He saw a great crowd. He's very tired, by the way. He wants to rest. But he had compassion on them, which is the Greek word to describe your lower belly. I feel it in my gut. I have, I'm moved in my gut. I feel compassion for them, a kind of love for them that aches. Why? Because they're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. And if they keep going, they're going to end up like this person I depicted in a place of torment. So though he was tired, though he didn't want to do it in his flesh, he began to teach them many things. And guess what he's trying to do? The same thing we're trying to do, persuade people, change their thoughts, change their minds. Everyone's got objections to the gospel. So knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's what we do. Why? Because we have compassion for lost people. I'd like you to think about that for a second. What I hope to get you to do in the next 12 weeks is to engage more in conversations defending the reasonableness of the gospel, persuading people. To do that, you've got to have a zeal and a jealousy for God's honor, and you've got to have a compassion and love for lost people. Thirdly, 1 Peter 3, 14 again, the passage says that we are to always be prepared. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared. Okay, well, that's very simple. And that is, and I tipped my hand on this earlier, it's, it's a command. You are commanded to do it. Every Christian, not just first century Christians, are commanded to be prepared and then to actually make a defense, to make it. It's a necessary thing when the truth is being attacked in our sphere of influence. Why engage in apologetics? Because you have to, you, you're commanded. Look at what Jude does here. He's trying to write them a great letter. Who knows what the half-brother of Jesus might have written? A great second volume of Romans. Maybe some great truths in, in, in like we find in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 regarding salvation. He wanted to write about salvation, which would have been a great book to write. Instead, he had to shoot off a quick email here, a short little letter in the New Testament, because he found it necessary to write appealing to you. Here's another word, not the word apologia, but the same idea. You got to fight. You've got to take up weapons of warfare and take these lofty opinions and change them. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, which is not just first century saints, but this is the truth that has been handed down to all of us. And you sit here as a recipient of New Testament truth, and you're called to respond by contending for it. And if Jude thought it was necessary in the first century to his recipients, I guarantee if he could look at our lives right now, granted that privilege, I'm sure he would say you need at least 12 weeks of discussion and apologetics because you've got to engage in a battle for the truth. It's a scary thing, just like our series on the weekends. I mean, if there's ever a time for us to get smaller as a church, I guess it's this fall. We've got evangelism on the weekends, we've got apologetics on Thursday nights. It's a scary thing. The Apostle Paul, and I mentioned this, and there was so much I could have said to defend it, but it certainly wasn't about that, that Paul was really someone who had stage fright. He was someone who came in fear and trembling and sweaty palms and weak knees. He wasn't a guy who wanted the spotlight and stand out there and stand before the professors of Athens and, and defend the truth. That's not his disposition. And yet, he's ready to go toe-to-toe with Michael the archangel. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary, there's some words for you, contend, contrary, weapons of warfare to take captive these thoughts, to destroy lofty arguments. If anyone's preaching to you a gospel, they got a different way to talk about how you get saved, the good news. It's a different good news than the one you received. Here's some big words from the Apostle Paul. Does it sound like maybe the zeal of Phineas? Let him be accursed. Let him be damned. That's what the word means. Let him go to hell. 
I mean, there's a strong statement from the Apostle Paul, one of the strongest that he ever has written in the New Testament. Let him be accursed. Why? Because he's teaching the wrong thing. Then he says this, which, of course, he's proved in the book of Acts, that he's engaged in telling them they're wrong. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Well, duh, clearly, if you're going to go around saying that people are condemned if they teach the wrong gospel, well, I guess you're not trying to please people. No, I'm not trying to please man. Am I trying to please man? Is this obvious to you yet? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be, this is so powerful, a servant of Christ. In other words, here's a way to put it. Don't call yourself a servant of Christ if you're not willing to defend the true gospel. Don't call yourself a servant. You're not really qualified to be a servant of Christ if you want to please people. And when they're telling you, whether it's your relative or your coworker or somebody on your neighbor, this is wrong, this is not true, you don't have to do that to be saved. There's another way to be saved. Yeah, God is loving, and here's the good news, and it's not the good news you're talking about. The Bible says that you ought to have a kind of zeal that's ready to go toe-to-toe to deal with that. And you've got to say, I'm not here to please my neighbors. I'm not here to please my coworker. I'm here to please the Lord, and that's what qualifies you to be called a servant of Christ. Wow, that's pretty heavy. Came out heavier on the platform than I than it did in the study. But that's that's what we need. A higher view of God, a more loving view of people, and a more obedient, responsive heart to the command to defend the faith, to contend the faith, to defend the truth, to give an answer to our world that's got all kinds of opinions about Christianity, biblical Christianity. So let's understand the battle. Some things here we need to understand. First of all, I'm concerned about this. What has been done to our language as it relates to what we often are represented by. We're represented by the word faith. Talk about faith organizations. Talk about the the church is all about faith. This is a problem. This is a problem because this has helped people, conditioned people to think about our Christianity in a completely wrong way. So we need to make sure that we do not buy into what most people think faith is. Remember the Da Vinci Code back in the day, that that stupid novel that came out and even, even dumber movie that followed it? I mean, ridiculous. And yet, if you go to Saddleback or Irvine Valley College or even UCI and you talk to these people in humanities, talk to these people in history classes, these professors, they will echo the nonsense that has really been codified in that novel, that fictitious novel, which he says is a historical novel and claims that everything in it is true. In essence, page after page after page, they're trying to convince you of something that most people now fully believe. And that is this, that believing in something, or faith rather, is believing in something that you know is not true. I mean, I could quote lengthy passages about that. I think I got one in this PowerPoint coming up. But the idea is, you know what? Faith is you dealing with things in an arena that could never be proved, that are never meant to be taken seriously. And faith means that you are believing in something, choosing to believe in something. And our practical society, a very pragmatic culture now says, because it's helpful for you. It's like a lot of things people do today. And they put trust in a lot of things that have no basis in fact. But you know what? If that helps you, that's fine. They don't even care anymore what you want to eat or not eat or what you want to drip behind your ear or whatever. Do whatever you want. doesn't matter if there's no proof for it. Just if it helps you, it helps you. Well, faith is that way. You have some faith in God and you want to pray, that's fine. Right now you got a real militant society looking at you and starting to really call you out on that and saying, you know, we don't need prayer. We need action. Don't offend me by saying you're praying for me. These, they don't believe in what the Bible says. They don't believe in what we would assert is true. And they're saying, well, you have faith. And at least in a civil discussion, they'll say, well, you know, that's what faith is. You go to church to believe things, you know that they're not, they're not, they're not true. They'll say things like, it's not about the facts, right? It's about faith. It's just about believing. Faith is just believing. Just believe. I mean, even that phrase, the t-shirts, the cards, the bumper stickers, they just, they just believe. 
And then we add this phrase to it, take a leap of faith. I want to get into this. And you just suspend your reason and you engage in something and you affirm it in some weird way or some subjective way, some personal way, and you just, you just, you just embrace it. Even though you know it's, it's not, it's like the tooth fairy, it's like Santa Claus. It just helps you. It's wonderful. It's, 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 it's romantic in, in, a, in, a, in a cultural sense. It's, it's good for you. It's great. If it helps you go on missions trips and help poor people, well, then terrific. Take that, that leap of faith into, into fairy tale land. Faith. Is it in the Bible? Well, the word's everywhere in the Bible. We see it a ton of places in the New Testament. But let's just understand a few things about it. Let me give you two definitions here, two usages, I should say. Neither of them reflect anything about what you see in the modern usage of the word faith today. Faith as a concept in our culture, you don't see anything like that. Well, the rare usage in the Bible is to accept something as fact. In other words, to say, I know and affirm that 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 thing is true. Is the word faith used that way? And I guess I should use the Greek words. It's not too helpful in this case. Pistis is the Greek noun. Pistuo is the Greek verb. These words that translate variously, they translate affirm, they translate into our ESV uh, faith, they translate into the word believe. Okay? All those, that word grouping, sometimes, and it's the minority, it's referencing someone believing something to be true, giving mental assent to the facts. And the word pistuo or pistis is used that way. The most common usage in the New Testament, though, is placing confidence, is to believe in, which is helpful when we have that preposition, right? We talk about prepositions, apo, away from, epi, pair, apo. And in this case, epsilon nu, in, to have faith in helps me recognize there's a distinction here. As a matter of fact, I would argue that when it's translated faith, it's trying to make it a stronger usage in the context of trying to show something stronger there. And yet I'm saying it didn't get close because faith has been really absconded by the culture. It's been ripped off. They've stolen the word from us and they've made it into something that the average person in your office doesn't, they don't, they don't understand what the biblical word means. So I'm for just completely redefining it. Matter of fact, you've noticed if you've been around Compass, I like to redefine the word in an English word that I think better communicates. I usually use the word trust. You could use the word confidence. It's a much better word. Well, you're just playing with words. Okay, well, let me give you one scholar. It's one of many from the Scholar's Bible. I thought I'd go from the Scholar's Bible. So he's supposed to be a scholar. Giving you a, what I think, in his commentary in the Gospel of Mark, in the very beginning, pages 24 and 25, giving you a good representation of what I'm trying to say right now. The words are small on the screen. Woo, really small. Can you read any of that? Some of you can. He says the the key terms, of course, he's writing in English to English readers. The key terms repent and believe, which are the two responses to the gospel that are commanded, have remained unchanged from the first great English translations of Tyndale from 1526. Think about that. 16th century early pre-King James Bibles, 100 years before King James, you had the word repent and believe or faith used in the New Testament. They just continue to use those all the way through the revised version of 1990. And this is an older commentary, but you could put it all the way down to the ESV 21st century. In the meantime, these English terms have taken on specific meanings of their own, which have moved farther and farther away from what the meaning of the Greek word is, the underlying Greek. Believe is now mostly used in a mental sense to accept is true. And I'm saying there are a few passages where that is how the word is used, but that's a rare minority. And only secondarily is it to have confidence or trust in. Of course, is the main point of the word. The second, to have confidence in or to trust, and not the first, not just to accept something is true. That's the primary sense of the meaning of the Greek word pistuo. 
and other related words, such as the noun pistis, which is usually translated faith or believe. But the common understanding of believe has overpowered the basic sense of faith. And I'm saying, even this, in the 1990s when this was written, man, faith now has been ripped off. So that both have come to signify mental activity. And I'm saying a mental activity contrary to fact. I mean, that's where we are today. You have faith. Oh, that's good. I got facts. To accept a statement is true. And I'm saying it's even worse than that today. As a result, in traditional English versions, Jesus' message comes out this way. Accept the words that I say is true. And I'm saying it's not even there anymore, really. It's, hey, believe this if it helps you. When Jesus is actually calling on his hearers to put their trust in the good news. And when the distraught father tells Jesus in traditional language, I believe, help my unbelief. Remember that passage from Mark 9, 24? It sounds like he's trying to convince himself to accept his truth, something that's not. Actually, he's exclaiming, I do trust, but help my lack of trust. I need to trust you more. Words change meaning. And you need to know the usage of the English words faith and believe, I think, are one of the biggest obstacles we face in apologetics today. We have to completely help people redefine what we mean when we talk about what we are and what we do. And what we, quote unquote, believe. Name this building. Travelers to Europe. You recognize it. It's not the Capitol building. Capitol building, though, was modeled after this and the Vatican. This is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. About 1700, this was finished. Cornerstone was laid in late 17th century. Christopher Wren was the architect. You've heard of him, right? Christopher Wren, the great masterful architect. He was going to have his cathedral inspected by the queen, Queen Anne. And Queen Anne came and took a tour of St. Paul's Cathedral. And he was breathless, waiting to hear, as everyone was, what did the queen think of Christopher Wren's greatest achievement, St. Paul's Cathedral, and really it's nothing until the queen says it's great. So that's what he's hoping for, is a good grade from the queen. Here's what the queen said. It's awful. It's amusing, and it's artificial. And Christopher Wren said, whew, great. And they had a party. Why? Because awful, back then, meant full of awe. It was awe-inspiring. She was like, wow, amusing. It meant amazing. It meant it made you muse with wonder. It's amusing. And artificial meant it's artistic. It's artful. She gave him a compliment with the words, it's awful, amusing, and artificial. All I'm saying is I'm not playing fast and loose with the English language to try and say, well, you know, these words and all this like secret, you know, Gnostic stuff about Greek and really doesn't mean that. I'm not, I'm not messing around. You can go in English and go back a few hundred years and get to the same problem when we see words that have completely changed in their meaning. This was a compliment that it's awful, amusing, and artificial. So I'm recommending this. We update the language. Now, I say I've been asked to do a Bible translation, but I have, which I turned down to be involved in those. But I have good friends that are involved in them, and I certainly would argue, talking to one this week that's involved in a translation, revision of the very popular English translation. Could we use the word trust to translate pistis the noun or to trust in pistuo? That'd be much, much better. That assured reliance, that confidence, that sense of my heart depending on something. Okay? Are there a few passages where we're going to deal with the ascent to facts? Of course. But even if you're going to struggle with the fact that the word believe sits on the page and it's just so, it seems so weak compared to what we're talking about and going to be talking about for the next 12 weeks. Notice the preposition in, which translates in our Bibles from epsilon nu to in in our Bible. And when you have that, it changes the meaning. 
It doesn't say believe the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It says believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It doesn't say believe God and believe me. That's a much weaker way to put this. Even if we stick with the weak word, believe confidence, have confidence and trust in God, have confidence and trust in me. Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and pastuo, trust in, believe in the gospel. At least the word in is there, which helps to elevate the word believe. John 9.35, Jesus said, do you believe in the son of man? Right, so again, some people think today, it's just, well, do I believe Jesus? Do I believe that he existed? And even that, I'm not sure. Do I just believe in him, put my, my kind of hope in him? It's not about a hope. It's not about, and hope, I mean, again, there's another word that needs to be changed because I talk often from the platform about cross your fingers kind of hope. That's how we think about hope. When I hope, when I wish, you believe in, you put your trust in the son of man. Now I said there are times when this is used as mental assent, which is even higher than most people would ever attribute to believe in faith today. And the one I'm thinking of, a couple of them, I'm thinking of James chapter two, verse 19. When it says, even the demons believe and shudder. Well, there's one context where we don't have believe in, and we're not talking about confidence or trust. We're just talking about, of course, they know. He says, you believe the Lord is one. Good. That's the old doctrinal statement of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. They call it the Shema, the Shema of Israel. You say, the Lord our God is one. He says, you believe the Lord is one. That's great. Even the demons believe. They acknowledge that truth which again is even higher than most people today are expecting from Christianity. Look at this. You want to talk about mental ascent? There was a man with an unclean spirit. This is a demon. He cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Okay, well, again, here's a statement of fact, which again is more than what most people today would say about what believe in and, and Christianity. All right, when Paul's talking about truth, he puts it this way, Paul, a depiction of Paul before King Agrippa and Festus. Paul says, why is it thought incredible? Interesting English word, right? Unbelievable, it's not credible. Why would you think it's not credible by any of you that God raises the dead? And he's making an argument, and though you can read it in a few minutes, it, I'm sure, was a lengthy discourse about that. And he adds a lot of information even in what's recorded. But he's making a case, he's persuading people, he's taking lofty concepts and making them rational to them. And he ends it that way in verse 25. I'm speaking true and rational words. So what we're dealing with here is a word faith, belief, that we're trying to help people understand means nothing of what people think it means. There are two usages and both are higher than what most people believe about Christianity. Pardon the redundancy of the words. They think belief is just a kind of thing you 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 have some kind of existential connection to this this thing called religion. When we're saying no, we believe the facts, and not only that, we put our trust in the person that those facts attest to. All right, understand the battle. Belief is one thing, and that's just a label and moniker that people misunderstand. And then I would say secondarily, we don't understand truth because people today will then use a heavy, weighty word like truth and say, well. I mean something different than you do. The nature of Christian truth claims. What we mean when we make a, a truth claim, what we're trying to get our neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members to, 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 to assert is that this thing that I'm saying corresponds with what really has happened. When we say, for instance, God exists, we're saying he actually exists. He actually really exists. There is a being who's all-powerful, who's sovereign, who, who has omniscience, who knows all things, and he exists regardless of whether or not you affirm that, whether or not you believe that. It objectively exists. When we're sitting at the barber debating the nature of God, and they say, well, I don't like that God, the reality is you can't debate something objective and both of us be right if we disagree. People today, when they say, I believe in God, they mean, yeah, I believe in some person and I've defined him the way I want and he's there. He's there for me, at least in theory, in some kind of 
creed and some kind of philosophy. But really, I'm not saying he's real. I'm not saying there's a real God anywhere. We say simple things like God became a man. God took on human form. Jesus was God incarnate. We believe that the infinite, sovereign, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent God took on human form, had fingernails and eyelashes and elbows, and he lived among us. Not that, hey, there was someone that we kind of deified and hailed to be God by some. And that's great if you want to believe that. But he's not really God. I mean, the God of the universe did not come down and live among us. Or Jesus is alive from the dead. We believe he's actually physically alive right now. That he actually has those fingernails and those eyelashes and those elbows somewhere. And he exists and he lives and he's physically, biologically alive. As opposed to what people would say, well, you're talking about religion. We're just saying he's a source of life, like abundant life, true life, better life. He's advanced your life. But I mean, in terms of a person, that person that lived a long time ago, if he even lived at all, he's, he's dead. The Latin phrase, which they break into three different books, which doesn't mean anything, veritas, Harvard's Latin word on their mono, it's their, their moniker, their, their motto, means truth. If you go to Harvard, though, and talk, as you go through the walls of Harvard or any other school, to go to an Ivy League to get this, you can go to Saddleback College and get this. They will say this. You want to get into our classroom and talk about religion? Wow, that's great. That can be truth, but it's truth for you. But don't claim that it's really objectively true, that it exists beyond you. It exists in your mind. And our culture today is constantly trying to push your religion into the corner, and you can have it in your mind, And they used to say you could have it in your church, which today they're starting to say you can't even do that anymore. But certainly don't bring it outside of that and insist to anybody else that it's objectively true. Real truth, they would say, is objective and it's true whether you believe those truths or not. And we teach that in mathematics. We teach that in science. We teach that in geology. They say that's true, but it's true in a different way than when you start talking about religious truth. That's subjective. It's true if it's true for you and you want to believe it. That's a very important distinction. I illustrate that all the time with pizza. This is Chicago pizza. This is New York pizza. Here's my true affirmation of my preference. This is way better. It's the best pizza. I'd rather have Chicago pizza because it is the best. Now you say that and you're saying what Mike Fabares has just done is he has made an affirmation of his preference. Is it true that Chicago pizza is the best? I'll bet some people here would say no. You say, well, Mike, it's best for you. It's true. That's a true statement for you that it's the best. And that's why we should be very, very careful, even when we talk about preferences, to make clear we're talking about preferences. I'm not saying Christianity is true because it's my preference over Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism. I'm saying it's true as in it's true, and it asserts things that the other religions don't assert, and that means one is right and one is wrong. If Christianity says Jesus rose from the dead, and Judaism says Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's still dead, and Islam says not only is he not did he not rise from the dead, he was never even crucified. You've got three different stories about one person, about one weekend back in 33 AD, and they all cannot be right. And yet go to Harvard, go to UC Irvine, go anywhere and talk to people in your office about truth. And they're going to say, well, that's true for Jews. What they say about Jesus, that's true for Muslims, what they say about Jesus, and it's true for you, what you say about Jesus. But don't go around trying to shove your truth down my throat, because here's the thing. You can say, this is true objectively if we're talking about math and science, but you can't say that about religion. Well, we're not talking about philosophy or theology. We're talking about the fact that someone died and rose from the dead. That's a historical assertion. And it was sad, and he saw it coming. But Francis Schaeffer said, he died back in the mid-80s, 84. He used to, and coined the phrase, true truth. He put an adjective in front of truth to remind us that when we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about something that is true objectively. That you cannot say simply because it's in the realm of something we call religion or faith, that somehow that has no objectivity to it. The assertion and truth claim of Christianity, we are claiming is true truth. And that's why we need apologetics. 
to try and reasonably defend our assertions about this is what happened and this is what those things mean. True, true. That's what we've always meant. Unfortunately, we have to qualify it. I hate to quote this terrible book, but this is where people live. I've shared the gospel so many times, and this is the stuff I get back consistently from page 342 of the book. This is Landon, Professor Landon, pontificating throughout the book. It's Dan Brown's philosophy and theology. He believes all that. He sticks these words in the mouth or Langdon. He says, the Bible represents a fundamental guidepost for millions of people on the planet. In much the same way, the Quran, the Torah, the Pali canon offer guidance to people in other religions. If you and I could dig up documentation that contradicted the holy stories of Islamic belief, Judaic belief, Buddhist belief, pagan belief, or Christian belief, should we do that? I mean, really? I mean, why would we mess with someone's religion? Should we wave a flag and tell Buddhists that we have proof that Buddha did not come from a lotus blossom? Should we wave a flag around and, and say that Jesus was not born of a literal a virgin birth? For those who truly understand their faith, they understand the stories are metaphorical, all of them. In other words, every truth claim that is made by Buddhists, by Hindus, by Zoroastrians, by Muslims, by Christians... They're just stories. And today you can see where everyone's fine with that. Christianity is your place to get your stories to live by. But don't say that they're objectively true. We're not ready to do any apologetics until we start with the fact that truth claims in Scripture are demanding that they're asserted as true truths. One passage. We'll get many others throughout this series. But 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, a physical bodily resurrection, then our message is useless. You should throw it out. There's no need for it anymore. He says, he goes on to say, and we're liars. We've misrepresented Christ. We've said he rose from the dead when he didn't rise from the dead. And he's talking now to people that are trying to say, well, we can believe in religion and Christianity. We can even believe in the resurrected life. We just don't believe in a physical, literal resurrected Christ. He says our faith, our trust, our confidence in Christ. It's futile then. It's for nothing. You can throw away Christianity. And we're unforgiven. No one's gotten their sins forgiven because we're really making assertions, truth claims, about what the death of Christ actually accomplished. And all the dead Christians that you know, lost forever, never going to see him again. Nothing will happen. There'll be no reality beyond the grave because that's what the truth claims of Christianity are. I mean, this is the either or option you have in the New Testament. We are not, we do not have time for metaphorical stories. We don't have time for philosophies to live by. These are either true or they're false. And if they're not true, he says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's not a bad philosophy if none of this is true. I'd like to satisfy every fleshly desire I have and then live it up in tomorrow. Whenever that tomorrow is for me, it's over. And don't tell me you don't have those thoughts sometimes, right? If none of this matters, if Christianity is not true, if there's no God, if Christianity is not the mechanism by which you can secure favor after you die, knowing that you're a fallen short person, even in the non-Christian world, they say that we're not perfect. No one comes to be perfect. Well, then what are we doing? Get away with as much as you can, do whatever you want, and in the end, it's all over. It doesn't matter. That's not what Christianity claims. Understand the battle. Now, let's engage in apologetics. Think we're going to think about it engaging. We're not going to do it right now. We're going to engage in, I want to give you some principles about engaging in apologetics. Letter A, back to our passage on the screen. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, you should honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. What are we supposed to do with the gospel? Go preach it to every creature, to use the old translation. Go everywhere. Be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Do you ever see this in Scripture? You may see this from church people. Hey, if anyone asks about Jesus, tell them about Jesus. You see this here, though. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. In other words, there is someone now countering what you've said, the hope that's in you. 
I just want to make this clear. Defending truth claims is not the gospel. These are two different things. When I share the gospel with someone, that's a message I'm supposed to share with everyone. Now, when they come back and say, here's why I don't think that's reasonable. Here's why I don't think that's true. Here's why I don't believe it is true truth. Now I've got a job. Now I've got to respond. These are two separate things, which by the way, even if I were to give an adequate, persuasive, convincing response to whether it be the existence of God, the deity of Christ, the reality of the resurrection, even if I were to convince them, then I've got them in the demon category, at least when they are affirming facts. Like obviously that passage is about the nature of God. There's a, there's a God. It doesn't help them. I mean, it may help them, but it doesn't get them, it does not get them saved. It does not change their status before God. So apologetics is not gospel engagement. It's related. It's not the same. Very simply, letter B, for the hope that's in you. They've seen the hope. They've heard the hope. It assumes you've shared the gospel, which again is something you are supposed to do regardless. We're supposed to do this with everyone around us. We have a sphere of influence. We ought to share the gospel. You're to testify to the truth of the hope that you have. You're supposed to tell people about the hope. The point of this is it vindicates the hope. It defends the hope. It gives a reason for the hope. It gives some people a sense that you're not crazy, that this is something that is rational and reasonable. It clears you. It absolves you. It exonerates you. frees you from the charge. All right, letter C. Spend a little bit of time on this. I want to prepare you to give a hope for the reason that's in you. That can fire people up to be Phineas, which is great. I want you to zealously defend the truth of the gospel. But Peter knows, and God knows, who ultimately wrote this letter, that the temptation will be for you to forget these two words, gentleness and respect. So here's what I need to say about the engagement in apologetics. It's not the gospel. Doesn't mean I have to do apologetics with everyone unless there's a reason to do apologetics with them. It assumes I'm sharing the gospel, and now I need to make sure that when I have this engagement, I am careful. I'm exercising self-control. And I'm saying this, and some of you know who struggles with it more than others. You've got to keep your emotions and your words in check. You have to govern them. Even that passage this week is Corinthians. Spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I love that. This is not unrestrained activity in the church when it comes to that topic of prophetic outbursts in the, in the first century church of Corinth. And certainly you're not unrestrained in your conversations with non-Christians. You're very careful. You're measured. And you keep yourself from engaging in things that are not gentle or respectful. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. I don't want to quarrel with you. Jesus said, don't throw your pearl before swine. There's a lot of going on on Twitter and Facebook and social media, Instagram, when people want to argue and we want to engage in that. We've got to be careful. The point is not to, to quarrel. This is not about who can be more aggressive or louder or even smarter. That's not the point. Our job is to be kind to everyone. I'm able to teach. And in our context, I'm able to defend the faith. And I can patiently endure evil. Now, here's the context. Correcting his opponent's with gentleness. I need to learn to correct people gently. There's power in the truth. There's something so fundamentally, as we'll see in a second, so fundamentally just connected to all that is real when I, when I state the truth, whether it's about the deity of Christ or the sinfulness of man. Oh, that's a great verse for us as we get started on apologetics. It's not about arguing, not quarrelsome. It's engaging. It's warfare. It's warfare that's gentle. That's the point. There's the trick. James chapter one, you start to feel the temperature go up. Remember this. I got to listen more than I speak. I'm quick to hear. I'm slow to speak, slow to anger. Here's a good reminder. Why? Because the anger man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger may help you. It may motivate you. As Martin Luther used to say, anger is one of my best motivations for preaching. And it's true. I can get zealous about the truth, even in the pulpit, because I'm angry, but I'm not angry engaging with people about that quarrelsome, argumentative, 
there's a great word in the scripture. It's a Greek word, striker. You're, you're pugnacious is the old translation. You're, you're a fighter. I want to fight for the truth without being a fighter, a scrapper. What is, how can you do that? Well, that's the point. I'm not angry. I don't want to get angry in expressing my anger in ways that tear people down. I don't want to be quarrelsome. I want to correct with gentleness. Keep your emotions in check. It may not be. Some of you are smart people, really smart. You're going to read. You're going to study. Some of you may be new Christians. You're going to get really, really, really good at responding to objection. And I would just caution you that there's another emotion you need to keep in check, and that is your, your pride. You're never going to be gentle if you're prideful. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just because we may be right about what we're saying and what we're defending, you cannot be arrogant. God is not going to be interested in advancing the ball down the field with you as the running back, as a Christian apologist, if you're filled with pride. Some of you are going to be good talkers. You're going to be good responders. You're going to think logically. You're going to be able to be the apostle Paul who can stand before Herod and be able to give a reasonable, rational response. And all I'm telling you is pride is no way going to help you, hurt you. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. So when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Well, of course, it was wise, and he makes that clear it was wise in the, in the book. But it's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. I didn't sit there and try to pontificate. I, I, I love the reality of, and, and you know, I don't agree with all of his theology, of course, but C.S. Lewis was such a great example of someone who is trying to clearly communicate and not show off. I mean, his books in defending biblical truth, to the extent that he does that, he's very careful in, in presenting things in a gentle way. And yet there's a lot of Phineas zeal behind it. It's not lofty speech or wisdom. And I love the way he even talks about writing. He says the job is not to sit here and try and use the, 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 even the best words in terms of rhetoric. It's the best words in terms of communication. You know, you, you want to be good at humbly connecting the truth. Do apologetics with children. You will really learn to get your, your heart in the right place. Proclaiming the testimony, not with lofty. Second Corinthians 4, remember this when it comes to your work in, in apologetics. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. It may seem like it's contradictory. I thought we were going to go persuade people and tear down every lofty arguments raised up against God. Well, we are, but we're fighting a battle against the enemy. They have a hard time seeing the light of the gospel because the enemy has blinded their eyes. They can't see the glory of Christ. That's what we're talking about, the gospel here, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the incarnate God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, not lofty speech, not a, it's not about me, it's not being prideful, but we are proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the boss, as the king, as the Lord. With ourselves, here's the humility part, as your servants, for Christ's sake, how can I help? That's the response in apologetics. How can I help? Not can I win and am I smarter than you? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Think about that. He created, says, let there be light, creates something out of nothing, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You're a Christian because God, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, has granted that to you. It's because of him that you're in Christ. So he's made you alive when you were dead in Christ, and he can do that with them. He's given you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's good stuff. And I know this is a big deal. Letter D, when it comes to the opponents of Christianity, whether it's your neighbor, your friend, your family member, have no fear of them and don't be anxious, don't be troubled. Fight fear and anxiety. There's no place for that in apologetics. Even if you, quote unquote, lose an argument and you're afraid of your reputation, get that out. Humble. And in your humility, you need to know this. There's no, there's no fear. I just love the way the Bible says you can't say anything It's the truth. Why? Because the truth is the truth. You can only help in, in, in saying things for it. You don't make things true because you say it. You echo that truth. There's no need to be fearful. I'd start with this. You're not alone in this. Even Paul, who puts himself up there with Peter, who was just such an important, special, appointed leader in the early church, the pastor of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, and Apollos, who was known as, as a great speaker, great in rhetoric, great powerful with his words. He says this, 
What are those guys? What is Paul? What is Apollos? What is, what is Cephas or Peter? They're servants through whom you believe. We're just servants. How can I help? That's what I'm saying in apologetics. I want to help you as the Lord is assigned to each. Some have greater gifts than others. Some are more intelligent than others. Some are better with logic than others. I planted. Apollos came along to you guys and watered, but God gave the growth. God did this. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's why we pray. That's why we ask God to change hearts. That's why we ask God to open the eyes of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We're trying to get God in his sovereignty to respond to the preaching of the word, to the defense of the truth. Listen to these phrases here. I don't think this is a stretch for us to apply these things to us, even though this is a more intense situation. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious as to how you defend yourself. Don't be worried. Here's the promise. I know first century, it came first to his apostles, but certainly this is the case in a lesser way, even though we're not being dragged in, at least not yet, to the officials of our government. Listen, he says, don't worry about what you're gonna say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I'll bet there's some experience in this room enough, not only in evangelism, but in apologetics, when you've known that God has brought to mind, called to mind, been able to let you articulate something in a very helpful way that you thought, wow, Where'd that come from? The Bible says God is actively involved in affirming his truth. The spirit is going to work through what you say. You're not alone in that you have the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian. The Holy Spirit has promised to help you through these encounters, even when you have really significant opposition. Not only that, you've got something inside of every non-Christian. It may be damaged. It may be blunted. It may be calloused. But they have this thing called a conscience. Paul says, listen, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We're not here manipulating people with our preaching or our apologetics. We refuse to practice cunning. We're not trying to deceive anyone or to tamper with God's word. We're not going to curtail it. We're not going to shape it. We're not going to try and tailor it to people's preferences. But by an open statement of the truth, I love this, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. God sees everything, every non-Christian I speak to, God has implanted a conscience in. Think about that. And I know I've got, I've got that on my side. You have an advocate in the non-Christian's mind. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, talking to non-Christians here, while their conscience bears witness. I mean, it's their witnessing with me. It's their doing apologetics with me. Their conflicting thoughts, accusing or excusing them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I know this, and I pray this. I jokingly said it about filling out that card this week, people not sleeping. Man, I pray that all the time when I'm dealing with evangelism or apologetics. God, when they sit there and stare at the ceiling in their bed at night, I know the conscience that you gave them and the spirit of God I'm praying that's working on them is going to testify to the truth of what I've said. You're not alone in this. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got conscience in them and you've also got creation, right? God's gonna judge the world, all the ungodliness in the world. People, because they're suppressing the truth in their own hearts, in their conscience, it'll say in Romans 2, But here it says, look at creation. What can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. So I know this. I'm not revealing something to them they've never known. The truth of God, the problem of sin, the solution in Christ. These are things you can even see in creation. Though the specificity of the Messiah and atonement can't be seen there, God has shown, though, the basics of his invisible attribute, namely his power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since creation of the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so much so that they're without excuse. I'm never alone in apologetics. I want to prepare, and I'm not trying to abdicate my preparation, but I got the spirit of God, I got the conscience in the non-Christian, and I got everything they ever see in creation that's mitigating against every lie that they're telling me about Christianity. All right, quick overview of where we're going. Anticipate the needs 
what needs to be defended. In one word, it's the gospel. Left-hand column. You know the gospel. Starts with this. God is creator. Do you think we're going to have to do any defense of that? Oh, yeah. Starting with there is a God, right? Atheism is going to have to be dealt with. That's an increasing problem in our day. And people saying, I don't think there's a personal creator, right? This is all about evolution. This is about a purposeless accident. There's a big explosion, and there's no God involved in that. There's no God that created us. How about this? God is holy. These are the gospel elements, right? Creator, holy, just, loving. Well, God is holy. Well, why can't we decide what's holy? And then where are you going for that? You're going to look at a book for that? You're going to look at the Bible? But that book has been rewritten so many times. I don't understand how the Bible is going to be the source of understanding what's right and wrong and the holy standard of God. We've got relativism, moral relativism. We've got the problem of the Bible in terms of what am I going to say about that book? Is it really just translated a million different times? And I mean, is there anything to this inspiration thing and revelation? How about this? God is just. God is just. Why would God judge me? Right? I, I'm, I'm basically a good person. People I know are basically good people. You don't think we got to deal with that? That's like the number one self-evaluation of people today. Ask them, are you going to heaven? Yes. Why? Because I'm a good person. If there is a God, I'm fine. Why? Because I'm better than most people I can think of that are worse than me. <laughs> of course, they love comparing themselves only with people they're better than. There's a lot here we've got to deal with. Heaven and hell, eschatology, judgment, anthropology, homartiology, sin. God is loving. Really? Then what's with all this suffering in the world? Why does God allow evil to exist? Pretty messed up place. Funny how they all intuitively want to be right with this God that they castigate as a bad God because all the evil's in the world. We're going to deal with that. We call it theodicy. It's the word for it. Justice. Theos. Theos. Adikios in Greek. How do I justify a good, loving God in light of the evil? And the problem of evil is going to have to be dealt with. Letter E. We say Jesus is God, right? The only way he could solve our sin problem. Really? This person became, this, this God became a person in, in, in human form? I thought Jesus was just a good teacher. I thought he was a good rabbi. What about what the, you know, the other religious people say about Jesus? Maybe he's an angel. Maybe he's like the Muslims say, just a, a, another prophet. They proved it with miracles. Really? Miracles? Are those even possible? Even if I somehow get through the creation thing, I'm still going to deal with how in the world are you telling me he turned water into wine, walked on water, and stilled a storm with his word? We're going to have to deal with supernatural and naturalism. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Really? How do people rise from the dead? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I thought death was the end of our existence. We're going to have to deal with naturalism. We're going to have to deal with immortality. We're going to have to deal with life after death. This is huge. This one here. Now we get to the nitty-gritty. The gospel respond, requires you to respond with repentance and faith. Really? What about religions that don't require that? What about religions that don't ask you to trust in Christ at all? What about other religions? We'll have to deal with pluralism, inclusivism. We'll have to deal with soteriology in general. What about people that have never heard the gospel? If, if you say this is the only way, what about the people that never have exposure to a church, church or preaching? They're going to go to hell? Really? We're going to have to deal with missiology, soteriology. And then we're calling people to live for Christ. Hopefully they're looking at you living for Christ. And they're going to say, what difference does that make? I mean, I can go to AA, or I guess God's involved in that in some weird way. But, I mean, you can go do a lot of things to change your life. What good does that do that your life is just, What does it prove that you are a different person? A lot of things I could attribute to that change in your life. Not only that, what about all the evil that's done in Christ's name? I mean, there's a lot of people out there that have done terrible things. What about all these wars done in Christian, you know, in, in the name of Christ and Christianity? Deal with existentialism, nihilism, objectivism, church history, sanctification. These are all issues that are going to come up in our apologetics. So there's a preview. We've got a lot more to go. Hopefully that whets your appetite for what's... Let's pray together. God, help us please to be prepared 
to think clearly about your truth. Thanks for this quick overview, thinking about truth and faith, what it means, what it doesn't, being prepared because we honor you in our hearts. We see you as unique, as the king that's worthy of defense. We recognize that there are people that need to be persuaded. You use us to do that. We want to love the lost. We want to have compassion for people that are not saved. And God, clearly, we want to respond to what the Bible says. We've got to contend for the faith. We've got to make a defense. So God, help us to be obedient to your word. Motivate us in all this, I pray. Be a great start to a great semester studying your word together. Amen.